Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. Well, Matthew, the weather is uh, quite the contrast this week from last Saturday during the Masters, isn't it? Goodness gracious. It's been a beautiful week it this has. week. <laughs> it has. Last week got a little cold and wet and messy and good grief. That was a tough day they had on Saturday. Um, it was. Kind of a messy Masters with them having to finish up, mm-hmm. you know, two rounds on Sunday. the next day. Yeah. But interesting nonetheless. I mean, John Rahm was unflappable. He was, and, you know, interesting kind of comebacks with Phil Mickelson making a run. I guess he got second. That was, yeah, second that was amazing came out of nowhere, to see him really. 265 on the last day to do that. Um, so very exciting Masters, it as was. usual, you know. And, it was. And Brooks Kepka could not put it together for four no, rounds. So, not, uh, not quite. It's uh, also finally calming down traffic-wise around here, which is which is a little nice. Yes, it nice is. Nice for us. It is, it is. So very interesting Masters. And speaking of interesting, we have two interesting topics to talk about uh, today on the show, you know, one of them is Americans tend to to be pessimistic about mm. their financial futures, um, and particularly their children's financial futures, you know, relative to their own. And uh, some interesting research out of Morningstar that that shows that that may not be exactly true. So we're mm. going to talk about that. Very interesting uh, article. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And uh, we'll also talk about in our second article. It's from Ramsey. Talking about what do you do if you're running out of money? This is um, this is very real. We you know there are many people who um, are struggling to make ends meet, and, and this is a very common challenge. Um, the percentages are very high of Americans living paycheck to paycheck. So we'll talk about that in the second article. Very interesting and very practical next steps if you are in that in that camp. Yeah, that'll be very very good. Um, by the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a certified. Well, Dave Ramsey, Smart Investor Pro with over 28 years experience in financial planning and investment advice. And I'm Matthew Travis. I'm also a uh, certified financial planner and am an advisor here at the firm. And we're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every Friday morning. Um, You can go straight to our website, um, uh, investourway or uh, moneymd.net. And uh, you can check us out uh, or listen to all of our shows um, anywhere in the world, of course. Uh, all our old shows are up as well, so there's lots of old shows. Um, topics are listed there, so you can search through those and find you know great conversation about just about any topic mm. financial that you want to look at. Um, and so also do check us out on our website. A lot of resources there as well and tools. Um, you can send us your questions. We would love to hear from you, and we will talk about those right here on the show. We're going to start off here, Matthew, with the fact of the week. And this fact is um, from The Motley Fool, and it, uh, it's talking about Social Security when people actually claim that, and when uh, the majority of people do. And, and this is only talking about the early stage at age 62, but the fact is that nearly 35% of men and 40% of women take the benefits at age 62. So at the earliest age that you can claim Social Security, um, you know, for the majority of Americans, if there's not a deceased spouse or something to that extent. So, right. you know, and, and more than a third take it at the earliest age. And I know we were talking before the show and you said, you know, that's, that's interesting. A lot of people, very few people wait until age 70 that's correct. to claim it. But yeah, almost a third claim it at the earliest age at age 62. Yeah, I would say the majority then probably claim it between 62 and, and 67, which mm-hmm. is full retirement age for, for uh, folks, you know, 
retiring more recently. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, most people don't go past 67. It's, it's rare we see someone go all the way to 70. Um, I would say that number is less than 10% for mm -hmm. sure. So most people, you know, take it somewhere between, you know, 62 and full retirement age. But, um, yeah, delaying might be the right decision, though. So you really need to think about this question hard before you just go out here mm. and take it because, you know, you're thinking a bird in the palm's worth two in the bush and maybe I better get it now before they run out of money. Right. Um, well, you know, there's a lot of things to consider and it does go up to seven and a half, eight percent per year. You delay. And for a married couple, that's a big deal because the higher, the, the higher of the two, um, benefits, um, will last two lifetimes. Mm. It'll, the, the survivor of the two of you will be able to draw the higher number for the remaining part of their lifetime. Wow. So yeah. you get two lifetime benefits, um, for that higher number. So you really need to consider delaying um, if possible. So, um, yeah, interesting fact of the week and, and very important, uh, thing to keep in mind when you're talking about social security. All right. And that leads up here to our first topic. And that is, um, article here out of Morningstar, uh, Matthew, um, Americans are typically too pessimistic about their financial futures is kind of the implication here. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, we all want our children and our generations that follow us to have to be more comfortable and have more opportunities than we do um, and do better, um, at least as good as we've done, right? However, the recent survey conducted by the University of Chicago's National Opinion Research Center reveals that most people don't believe that'll be the case. Um, in this study, the, one of the questions was, do you feel confident or <clears throat> not confident that life for your children's generation will be better than it has been for us? Mm. And only 21% of the interviewees um, said yes. Well, um, yeah, so it was a really low number. And, and to an extent, I mean, that response reflected, you know, general dissatisfaction about how the financial opportunities were progressing for their children and for future generations. You know, other questions about financial topics revealed similar pessimistic replies. You know, for example, only 28% believe that people like you and your family have a good chance of improving your standard of living over time. Wow. Yeah, that is very low. I mean, it's just one-fifth of people would say it's going to improve. This article does deeply disagree with that conclusion, with the public's conclusion, and really shows through this um, some some empirical data that the opposite is actually true. While past performance does not predict the future with investing, it has reliably predicted the direction of the U.S. economy over time. Each generation of Americans has been wealthier than the one before it. Data from the U.S. Census Bureau uh, shows that households all across the income spectrum have increased over the past 50-plus years from the lowest percentile to the most affluent. While there are periods like the last decade from 2000 to 2009 where incomes don't rise, uh, in general, every level of household income has increased over the past half century. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, unfortunately, the largest increase has favored the most affluent households, while the lowest percentiles in household income have risen very modestly. Um, year by year. Um, roughly speaking, though, um, you know, the initial half of the period captures the prime working years of children in the Great Depression, while the second half of that 50-plus year period, 55 years, 
um, displays kind of the younger baby boomers. <clears throat> and so, you know, the trend has been up, though, for all of those, for both of those periods and for every category of income earner. Um, you know, to be sure, the rich have indeed become richer and have benefited more from increases in income. Um, you know, but the popular lament is 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 no myth, though. Um, yeah, the nation's economic bounty has trickled down disproportionately, and you know those atop kind of the wealth pyramid um, benefited the most, followed by the middle class. Meanwhile, the nation's poorest households have seen the least improvement, but it has increased nonetheless. Um, household incomes for the 80th percentile increased from about um, $21,000 per year to about $28,000 per year over that period of 55 years. So that's about a 33% increase. Um, so still pretty significant increase over time. Um, and the data, you know, supports this claim uh, that, you know, the poor to a lesser extent and then the middle class um, have seen those increases and citizens haven't participated enough in the rising economic tide. Um, you know, that, that criticism is valid. But, you know, there is another thing, all, it's another thing altogether to extend the argument by contending that Americans are worse off than mm. they were before, because that's clearly not the case from the data here. Um, however, you know, to see more significant increases, you, you definitely need to kind of move up the income ladder into the higher percentiles to really benefit from the increase we've seen over time. Yeah, and, and so one objection that this article points out is maybe you would say, hey, well, you know, we're looking at over 50 years. Maybe, you know, this happened all in the first 10 years of that period and the last 40 years has just been going downhill. And that's not true either. Um, when, when we break the data down into two halves, we can see that the increases are persistent. While the first 28 years, uh, they are slightly better than the last 27 years, the increases are fairly close. The lowest percentiles, like the 80th percentile, saw income improvements of 0.3% uh, and 0.5% year over year for those periods. So looking at those those two different eras. Right. Um, whereas the, the top uh, income earners saw an increase of 1.4% compared to 1.3% per year. So again, very um, comparable um, and, and very similar looking at those two, the, the first 28 years compared to the last 27 years of this study. So very similar data. It's not <clears throat> just stacked in the front. Of, of that period. Yeah, that's right. And the outcomes were pretty consistent. You know, the relative strength of the high income household persisted across both halves of the divide um, across the income spectrums. Uh, in all instances, the results were positive. Households grew richer, not poor, over those 55 years and over both halves or both, both sections mm. of that period. Um, in this condition held you know, true for shorter time periods as well. You know, for example, the 80, even the 80th percentile households, um, which which we see, you know, enjoyed the smallest gains, became wealthier each decade. You know, their incomes were higher in 1977 than they were in 1967 or 1987 than they were in 1977 and so forth, you know, up through 2017. You know, the effect was stronger yet for the other income income percentiles. So the higher you go up the income spectrum, the more you benefited over time from those increases. Yeah, and thus far we've we've only examined the second term of the two word phrase household income. Another important factor is the size of the households. 
the next uh, this next uh, data point really illustrates that over time, the percentage of U.S. households that contained one one person, two people, or three or more people um, has been decreasing the number of people in each household. Um, it shows that this is this has dropped dramatically. Whereas fifty fifty six percent of households in nineteen sixty seven consisted of three or more people, only thirty seven percent of households now meet that same description. Um, the number of single person homes has risen to twenty eight percent from sixteen percent. So today's households not only earn more money than they did in the past, but also, you know, per this data, they have fewer mouths to feed. In, in short, history suggests no reason why Americans should be pessimistic about their financial future. They have more income, less mouths to feed. Just in general, that is a way to build wealth over time. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, while sometimes the kind of the collective wisdom of the crowd can be amazingly accurate, you know, as like guessing the number of jelly beans in a jar, for instance, um, you know, there's been some interesting studies about those kind of things. Um, but there are other times when it, the collective wisdom of the crowd or the opinions of the crowd are significantly off base. And this is one of those cases, you know. I mean, even a cursory glance at the public's past predictions is enough to destroy one's faith in the kind of the communal foresight. I mean, for example, 74% of respondents to a 1990 Gallup poll expected the rate of inflation to accelerate well into the next decade. Um, and 71% believed that the crime would rise as well over the next decade. And 67% expected greater poverty. Um, well, all three of those ended <laughs> up being far off base. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, in fact, you know, crime, the crime rate prediction was massively wrong as it dropped about 40% over the last, wow. that decade in 1990. Um, and so, you know, the decade that people thought would bring more crime delivered exactly the opposite and the greatest crime reduction in modern American history, in fact, mm. happened during that decade. So despite, you know, the perception of what we've seen in some large cities, I mean, crime tended to come down and it still has continued to come down since then mm. um, over the decades following that. Um, so, you know, per perception is not reality in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in summary, I mean, we're not sure, you know, why Americans are so pessimistic about their financial future. Um, you know, some speculate it. It's because the country has, you know, lost its moral path. I mean, others blame kind of the culture of negativity um, you know, caused by warring politicians and or, you know, the isolating the effects of technology. Um, but, you know, whether those theories are correct is a good topic for future studies. But history shows that pessimism is largely unwarranted mm. when it comes to, um, you know, the future wealth or future finances of our kids. And, um, you know, one doesn't need, you know, a table-pounding capitalist or a our blind apologist, you know, for all Americans to accept the fact that, you know, for 250 years, the nation's economic system has always found a way to move forward. And uh, the trend is, you know, most likely going to continue in mm. the future. So I thought it was an interesting, an interesting topic, interesting article, you know, it really kind of drives home the fact that, you know, technology and, you know, innovation over time, capitalism does result in higher standards of living and higher incomes over time. And so it's a good good reason for us to be optimistic about the future. That's right. And just one one closing thought, you know, practically for clients, one application of that is 
um, you, know, you don't have to worry about this. Like that is, we, we see a lot of worry around finances, around the markets, around things that we really can't control. Right. And, and the big takeaway from this article is you don't have to worry about this. Over time, it's, it's, it's always gone up. The economy has always been growing. The crime has been decreasing, we've seen. So just to take a lot of the worry off your plate, of, especially of things you can't control, is, would be a good application of that, of that article. For yeah, us. I, I agree. And just to add to that, I mean, I always hear the argument, well, yeah, but it's different this time. We've right. never seen this before, you know. And it's true. I mean, we, we've never seen, you know, uh, AI before, you right. know. I mean, really implemented in society, you know, the way we're starting to see that with GPT chat and, Mm-hmm. You know, some of these other technologies for artificial intelligence. However, I would say that, you know, companies will adjust, society will adjust, jobs will change just like they did during the pandemic. And, you know, country companies will be profitable and people will have jobs. Right. You know, they'll just be, they might be different jobs, but people right. are going to have jobs. Right. So I wouldn't worry about it, I guess, is the bottom line That's good. for that. All right. And that leads us up here to our question of the week. And this is a good question. Um, Steve, I'll let you answer this if you will. Um, but the question is, should I pull out of my retirement account and pay off my credit card debt? And there's a caveat that this person is under 59 and a half years old. Okay. Well, I would say, yeah, if you're under 59 and a half years old, th- this is a this is a gimme, you know, <laughs> answer here. Gimme putt. Um, yeah, because you definitely don't want to touch your retirement plan, um, you know, to pay off credit card debt. Um, of course, you want to pay off credit card debt. But to be effective and to really change the behavior that led to credit card debt, you really need to do it the old-fashioned way. Mm. You know, you need to budget. You need to you need to create some income, some some room in your budget, some extra cash flow that you can start putting toward credit cards. You need to do the snowball where you pay off the the smallest one first and build some momentum. Get excited about it. Start saving money. Start living within your means. That's the way to pay off credit card debt. If you just take money out of your retirement plan, and I've seen this over the last 28 years, I've seen this dozens of times where, where people people pull money out of the retirement plan to pay off credit cards, and guess what happens three or four years down the road? They're back in it. They're doing it again. Yeah. That's right. It doesn't solve the problem. Mm. So you're just going to perpetuate the, the behavior mm. that created it. Once you get the credit cards all paid off, you're going to feel easy. You're going to breathe Breathe easy, then you're going to start spending money a go little back bit. Into it, yeah. Go back into spending money again um, and running the credit cards back up because you're now the pressure's off. So um, mm. it's not the way to handle the problem of credit card debt, uh, just pulling money out to pay it off. So regardless of what age you are, I would encourage you to do it the hard way and pay it off over time and, you know, create a budget. Mm, that's good. So Good answer. There you go. All right, and that leads us up here to our next topic, and that is, you know, what to do if you're running out of money. Speaking of budgeting. <laughs> That's a great, great segue into that. Yeah. Yes. And so this this is from Ramsey. It's a great article, um, but it's basically saying, hey, you're at the end of the month. You're you're running out of money. Again, uh, it's a hopeless feeling uh, scrambling to see which bills you're going to pay late, scrounging around in the pantry for food until your next paycheck. Um, and So if that's you or if you know someone who is walking through that, uh, maybe this would be helpful. Um, hear this. You you certainly are not alone. In fact, the numbers are 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. And now inflation is um, you know increasing the prices of everyday items, making it even more difficult to make ends meet. Um, but listen, there's, there's hope. And there's some very practical things in this article that we're going to go over that uh, we think will be helpful. 
Exactly. Yeah, and you might think, well, all I need to do is make more money to solve this problem. Mm. And yeah, more income certainly will help. Um, But, you know, here's the truth. You know, it'll never matter how big your paycheck is if you're always spending it on your past, you know, through debt. Mm -hmm. You're always paying it off in arrears. Um, You know, if you have no plan for your spending, then you're going to you're going to keep running this problem no matter how much income you have. You know, don't put a temporary bandage of more cash on the problem. You know, find a true solution, you know. So you got to stop the cycle of running out of money by following some simple steps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this first one is to review your spending. It's time to get serious and take an inventory of your money. Go ahead, log into your bank account, pull up your transactions, and look at your expenses, big and small. Where is your money actually going each month? Do you see patterns in your spending? Uh, No matter what you find, it's important to dig deeper and ask yourself, is this purchase a need or a want? If it's a need like your utility bill or rent, then that's a different story. But if it's a want like a restaurant or maybe it's coffee or pedicure, manicure, if you like those, uh, or just like a, a random expense that's something that's not needed, Um, something's got to change. Remember, you're running out of money, so you can't keep spending like you have been. Um, But as you make these changes, you'll start feeling something that maybe you haven't felt in a long time, and that's going to be peace of mind through that process. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, the the next step here is to create the budget, Mm -hmm. as we talked about. Um, So, okay, so you you looked at where your money's going, right? So now you need a plan. You'll do this by creating a zero-based budget, is what it's called, um, and which is when your income minus your expenses equals zero. Mm. You know, so this is the type budget that that puts you back in the driver's seat, um, as you can tell where every single dollar is going. Um, you know, and this is one time where you know one of the very few times in life where seeing zero is actually a good thing, <laughs> right? It's not negative. So when, you know, when you're used to running out of money, um, you, you need confidence of knowing that you're not wasting a single dollar. And that's what this is doing. You know, it's the best budgeting meth- method there is out there. Um, and if you, if you need help getting your budget set up, then, you know, keep it going. I mean, check out a number of free budgeting tools out there, like every dollar, um, you know, mint.com, um, Yanap, which I haven't heard of. YNAP. Um, YNAP, okay. Mm-hmm. You gotcha. need a budget. That's the acronym. That's yep. it. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, okay. But anyway, I mean, when you're setting up a budget, you know, what comes first is a good question. Our next an- next step will answer that. Yeah. And so, you know, paying your important bills first, which ones do you pay first? Which ones do you let um, kind of be on the back burner, if you will? Um, you know, let's say you have more bills and you know what to do with. You do have to play favorites. Just practically, we have limited income. So, Set aside those, um, you know, those uh, harsh worded letters from credit card companies. Um, guess what? Debt collectors, you're not going to get paid exactly right now as you want it um, because we're going to do the, the things that are truly needs, that are the four walls, uh, the basic necessities. We want to pay those first. So we want to pay it in this order to food, utility, shelter, transportation. After you've got these four walls covered, then you can start spending what's left over to cover your other payments like credit cards or other processing bills. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, what should I do when I can't pay my bills? Um, you know, that's a rough situation to be in and we don't want to make light of that. Um, you know, you're probably feeling a lot of anxiety that's building up. So, I mean, pause, take a deep breath 
you can't pay your bills because of inflation or a job loss, you know, it, it's going to be okay. Um, it won't be easy, but it'll be okay. Um, so, you know, taking care of your family has got to be number one. Um, if you don't have any money to send a MasterCard or Sally Mae, you know, to pay off student loans or whatever it is, it's not the end of the world. And even if your bills go into collections, you still have time to pay them. Um, so remember, you know, no matter what the creditors might say, don't let them bully you into believing that paying their bill is the most important thing and is more important than putting food on the table. Mm -hmm. You know, it's time to get creative. Um, you know, once you've done an inventory on where your money is going, then and you made a zero-based budget, then it's time to cut your spending and bring in more money. Yeah, and so this fourth one is, is you know, finding ways, fourth step is find ways to cut your spending. Remember that the patterns you found in your monthly uh, bank statements, whether it was your daily you know, coffee fix, extras at the grocery store, or those little Amazon purchases, uh, it's time to press pause on these spending habits until you can get ahead with your income again. Yeah, and so, you know, number one way to do that is to, to eat meals at home. Um, yeah, I mean, eating out is easy, right? It's tasty, it's good, um, but if you can't pay your bills, the only time you should see the inside of a restaurant is if you're working there, you know, seriously, yeah. I mean, you know, um, you know, buy groceries, cook food, eat meals at home, and you'll save hundreds on food each month if you get intentional like this, you know, it's extra work, but it's also worth it, and it's it's also a lot more healthy. It's <laughs> so much healthier. That's a side note for exactly. sure. The second one is um, to use coupons. Um, I mean, this is maybe a little old school, but clipping coupons. Uh, if, if you're not a big clipper in the newspapers, then you can go onto apps, and there's a lot of different sales each week. Just shop in the sales. Maybe you shop at Lidl or Aldi or uh, Walmart instead of Publix or Kroger You know, for, for a season, and, and that will cut back the expenses as well. So yeah, use coupon, shop the sales. That's that's a great way to cut spending as well. Yeah. And then review your subscriptions. I mean, we all do it. We hear of, you know, a great show out there, a great app, you know, and we sign up for it and you got this monthly new streaming service or you have this monthly app that you're paying for. Um, and then there's another and another, you know, because of course, you know, all the popular shows aren't just on one platform. So when you're reviewing, you know, what your wants and your needs are, hopefully you've noticed that if there weren't a bunch of extra subscription services out there you can cut, you know, you, you, you probably can. You need to look at those hard, and you need to use the free versions of those mm. now. So, you know, and endure the ads, you <laughs> know, and, and when it comes to cutting expenses, you'll need some discipline. So get some help, you know, get some trust, get a trusted accountability partner, you know, that's your spouse if you're married. And, um, you know, start having monthly, monthly budget meetings together. You know, they'll provide some extra set of eyes to help you, you know, do the hard work and keep up with it over time. Yeah, that's good. And this last step um, in, in this kind of process, if you will, is, all right, find ways to make extra money. We did say that making extra money isn't the only solution here, but it is a solution, like you said, Steve. Once you've gone through these other steps, it's time to work this one as well. And here's a, just a few quick ideas. There's, I mean, I'm sure you guys listening to the podcast can think of a hundred more, but here's just a couple to kind of get the ball rolling if you're if you're stumped. But one would be to deliver food if you've got a, a valid driver's license or a working car or a bike and some extra time on your hands delivering food might be a good opportunity for you. You can check out Uber Eats, Grubhub, Postmates. 
uh, DoorDash, companies like these offer a base pay and you get to keep your tips. So that's a very easy way in the, in the gig economy, as they call it, yeah. to make some extra money. Yeah, in the gig economy, it seems like there's no limit to the things you can do. Um, one of them here is shop for groceries. You know, if you like to grocery shop, um, you can do it and earn money for it by doing it for somebody else. You know, so check it out on like Ship <laughs> Tea, Instacart, and then you can start shopping and make some money that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can become a, a kind of a glorified mailman. You know, everybody loves good mail. Um, uh, a good mail day, right? When mm-hmm. you get some good things in the mail. <laughs> well, you know. But um, even more of that, we all love a good Amazon delivery day. So sign up for delivering for Amazon Flex, you mm. know, start making some money and putting some smiles on people's faces when you when you give them their packages. Yeah, everyone loves a good Amazon package. That's, that's, right. that's a good endorphin rush. There you go. Uh, and a couple more, getting creative. You know, if you have a skill, if, if you are very good at graphic design, freelance, um, you can check out Fiverr, F-I-V-E-R-R. We've actually used this for our company. It's a very inexpensive way to get good ideas. And if you're very creative, like, um, you know, drawing again or doing voiceovers, you can offer your services and get paid through that, through Fiverr. So again, being creative, uh, there's a lot of different ways to do that on, on a lot of different sites now. Yeah, and there's so much stuff you can do online. I mean, walking the dog, you know, I mean, <laughs> if you have a flexible schedule, you can sign up for Rover. It allows you to make money by walking you know, dogs around the block, you know, in your neighborhood. Um, so that's, that's a great thing. And then of course you can sell stuff, sell stuff, you know, on Facebook, on marketplace, um, eBay, um, you know, there's, we all have extra stuff we could go sell. So yeah, I mean, lots of ways to make money out there. Um, you know, you and so be creative, you know, make some money, get, get, create some room in your budget so that you can get on the right path mm. to, um, you know, having that zero-based budget and even yeah. a positive budget. That's great. And if you have any questions or just, you know, want some help on that, reach out to us. We'd be happy to help and just go over your budget even and, and just and just think through that with you uh, on the outset of that. Absolutely. All right, good topic. And that brings us up to our last item, and that is the prescription of the week. And this week's prescription, Matthew, is to keep your savings account and your checking accounts separate and unlinked. Hmm. Because when it comes to budgeting, um, if you if you have your savings account linked to your checking account, you tend to 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 take money out of it too often. Okay, and you start using it like just an extension of your checking account, and you can't build up your savings to a proper emergency fund. Hmm. So one technique to make that a lot easier is to separate the two, make it harder to get to, so you can get money building up in your savings account, get money going in there automatically every single month, and then don't touch it. You know, make it a little bit hard to get to. It's a separate account that's not linked to your checking account. That's your prescription of the week Hmm. for this week. All right, and that brings us to a close for this week's edition of MoneyMD. Tune in next week for more prescriptions for your financial health check us out on our website moneymd.net send us your questions we'd love to hear from you or you can give us a call at richard young associates at 706-739-0725 thanks for listening have a great rest of your week material in this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment tax or legal advice none of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security all hosts are representatives of richard young associates a registered investment advisor